0: Welcome to season two of Best in SaaS, where we talk through the patterns and playbooks in the revenue sprint to 20 million and beyond with the industry's most accomplished executives, entrepreneurs, and investors. Despite the world melting around us, we survived season one with only a few scratches and a couple of bathroom incidents from our resident Best in SaaS puppy mascot, Stuart. Wash your hands and don your favorite face mask because here comes season two. Howdy, everyone. Welcome back to another episode. I am thrilled, per usual, for you to listen in on this conversation. But before we get into it, if you're a regular listener and you enjoy the discussions, do me a favor and let us know by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. It helps other folks find the show, and it helps Apple realize they should feature us on New and Noteworthy. So that would be awesome. With that, enough of my blabbing. Let's get on to the episode.
1: All right, this is Olin Hyde. I'm the CEO and co-founder of LeadCrunch.ai.
0: Hey, Olin, uh, great to have you on the show. Um, I mean, your background super impressive. You've you've already sold two companies in your career, and now you're working on an exciting third one with LeadCrunch. Um, but you know, we've had conversations in the past that I, I'd really love to just share with the with the listeners today. You didn't start off with the focus you have today, which was kind of this fresh take on AI and account-based marketing. So we'll get there eventually, but can you share with us? I mean, you started off as a a research company and then you were helping the Navy with, with targeting. Take us through the journey.
1: (laughs) Yeah. So uh, (laughs) my wife tells me all of my intelligence is artificial. So I I wish I was clever (laughs) enough to figure out this particular market that we're in right now uh, at the onset, but, uh, as Winston Churchill said, uh, "Success is nothing more than going from failure to failure without the loss of enthusiasm." And uh, I'm a very enthusiastic guy, so yes, we started off as a medical research company.
0: So, what was I mean? What was the process like? I, I think, as time goes on, those of us who have started a lot of companies and had a lot of failures and, and a few successes find it easier to know when to pivot when something isn't working. What are some of the patterns that you were seeing that made you realize it was time to call that and move on to the next iteration?
1: Great. uh, Let me start with giving a little context of how we did pivot. We went from a medical research company where we had technical success in helping to find a possible link between type 1 diabetes, which is an autoimmune disease, and the herpes virus. And that research was published. Uh, 11 million dollars of fast-track funding uh, was granted. Uh, the research careers of the scientists were got a big boost. Uh, we failed to find a market for that technology. We took it to over 300 research institutes, and we had found a solution to something no one cares about. Uh, we found a tool to data mine medical research, to have new medical discoveries. And what the market really wanted was a better tool to get funding and publish papers. And so we pivoted from that. Uh, We were actually ready to shut the company down. And and an advisor, a friend of mine, is the former uh, director of DARPA. And I was having breakfast with him. And he said, well, it sounds like what you've got is a targeting technology. I'm like, yeah, pretty much most artificial intelligence is, re- is really around the identification and prediction of patterns. And so sure, that's, you can think of that as targeting. So well, why don't you sell it to the military? Well, I don't know how to do that. And he made some introductions. And uh, less than a month later, we had beaten Palantir and IBM Watson to win a research and development contract for the United States Navy uh, with Lockheed Martin. And we did that project, Uh, it was successful, it kept the company alive long enough for us to discover that we'd never wanted to work with the government ever again. And that started a journey where we did a lot of experimentation to try to find a market that we wanted that was highly scalable, where we could have uh, big commercial success and really build a large, profitable, fast-growing company that made a difference to our customers. And uh, we landed upon demand generation, business-to-business demand generation. And uh, Inc. Magazine uh, listed us as the third fastest-growing company in California last year. Uh, We expect to be ranked in the top 100 fastest-growing companies uh, this year. Uh, We believe are one of the fastest-growing marketing technology companies and the reason that we are growing well is that we really just use our own technology to grow but your question is why did you pivot or how did you know to pivot between those those three major bus, different business models exactly i think that i think that that's a it's if you don't have economic value where you think you do you need to pivot and in the first case we solved the wrong problem a problem that didn't have economic value, as evidenced by a good college try to go out and sell it, and we couldn't. And the second one, uh, we were not a good fit between the personalities of the the founders and the nature of the industry. Uh, I am not well suited to sit in a conference room filled with people who don't make decisions and speak in acronyms. Uh, That's not (laughs) how I want to spend my day. So, I think in both cases, it was pretty evident we needed to pivot because I was not going to fund the startup forever without revenue in medical research. And I was not going to spend my days being miserable doing government contracting. And then when we got into demand generation, business to business demand generation, I wouldn't call them pivots, I would call them evolutions. We knew there was a big market, we knew who the competitors were. And our insight was to look at a very fundamental problem of what industry is a company in. Uh, That is a very simple question, and there's been surprisingly little evolution on it uh, in the past 100 years. We have uh, SIC codes and NAIC codes, and these are used by marketers to think about what companies to sell to, to segment a market. And uh, market segmentation is kind of the old technology. The new technology is really called account-based marketing, where, again, oftentimes people fall back to the familiar industry codes to say, okay, we sell to aluminum, uh, the, the aluminum industry or we sell to the car industry. And I would argue that as companies evolve and get more competitive and more differentiated, what industry they are in becomes increasingly less clear. For example, what industry is Apple in? Are they a retailer? Are they a phone company, a software company, a computer manufacturer? Maybe they're a music publisher. The fact of the matter is they're all of that and a lot more. But if you're selling to them, they you can think of them as having a a DNA, a genetic code of the different industries they're in. They're in different industries, different degrees, but as you selling into Apple, you need to know specifically the buying group that is interested in your particular solution. And that is not gonna be answered with an industry code. It's gonna be answered by understanding the operational profile of a company and their business focus. And a company can have multiple business business eye, and they can have multiple operational profiles. And you have to know both for your particular product or solution uh, to get a good, what we call a good uh, ideal prospect fit or a good customer profile.
0: So the last your, your last two venture backed companies were acquired. I'm curious. What, you know, once you were onto this idea and had this thesis and it was your th- the third iteration, what were some of the kind of lessons you'd learned in the past that you called upon to kickstart the growth of LeadCrunch and begin to get it to the place that it is today?
1: Yeah, point of correction, uh, this is my first venture-backed company. All of the other companies I started were bootstrapped. Um, So that's a much different mentality of bootstrapping. The very first company I started, I was uh, 25 years old and I could barely spell real estate. I think I got it right on the fourth or fifth time. And we built a real estate uh, administration system for companies that lease a lot of properties. Uh, The product uh, was very successful. We sold 50 of the Fortune 100 within the first 18 months of product launch, and uh, that company went on to get acquired and go public, and is now part of a private equity portfolio. So the lesson, and and I had a lot of things that were a lot less successful between then and now. Uh, I would think you know the main thing that I think venture-backed companies fail to understand is it's really important to. To have your customer lifetime value to your customer acquisition costs, you have to have that those unit economics well understood very early and constantly work to optimize them. Uh, and that's typically called the CLV or LTV that mean the same thing, divided by your CAC. And in software as a service businesses, you typically want to see a ratio of, of three to one. When we did our series A, we were at five to one. So, uh, and it, we had trouble getting our series A because we were not a subscription model. And as you know, uh, the venture community tends to run as a as a herd, which is kind of interesting dynamic considering they make money on the exceptional, uh, unusual companies, but they tend to fall into groupthink. And I think that a lot of that's driven by where they get their money from. Everybody has a boss, including a VC. And a VC's boss is the limited partner. And a lot of times, uh, it's very comfortable to think about subscription models as being more reliable. Uh, you know, in terms, particularly in, uh, today, I think you could probably argue that they are. In a downturn, that you know where your revenue is coming from. But the the thing that I wish I understood earlier that probably would have helped me not have as many failures along the way is really deeply understanding. The mechanics of the of what drives unit economics for your acquisition costs and what drives your customer lifetime value.
0: So, you know, you you just brought up an interesting point, which is you chose not to be a subs- priced as a subscription business. So, walk us through that. I mean, that was a big decision. I'm assuming. Um, yeah. Did you trust it yeah. first, or how how did you land on that?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I love subscription models. I love SaaS. Uh, however, uh, it is dogma to think that SaaS apply, the pricing model of SaaS, it's really a pricing model, not a business model, applies to all situations. I was actually having uh, dinner with one of our seed investors, an angel investor who I really have phenomenal respect for. He was uh, the early investor in... Um, lending lending club, and had a number of big unicorn exits. And he encouraged me to have the courage to think differently about our pricing model and business model. And he pointed to the, at that point, there's probably 5,000 MarTech companies. Um, Now there's probably more than 8,000 MarTech companies. And they all try to sell a subscription. And He invested into us because he believed the thesis of that if we can understand operational profiles and business focus at scale across the entire web, then we've got something that has value beyond demand generation, that we're actually building something you can think of as a representational model of the economy that can explain and predict who's going to buy from whom. So if you have that, why would you price it the same as, you know, going out and buying a subscription from Sixth Sense or uh, Zoom Info? And it troubled me for months. It really was hard because we really wanted to have a subscription model because that's what Silicon Valley was telling us was most valuable. And uh, I met uh, Jeff Green and Dave Pickles, who are the two founders of the Trade Desk at a conference. And ironically, uh, it was at a SaaS conference put on by uh, Jason Lemkin called Saster. And uh, Jason, I was one of Jason's first tenants in a co-selling space that they set up in San Francisco called the Saster Co-Selling Space. And uh, the insight was: if you're selling relationships. Each relationship is priced should be priced differently because some relationships are very valuable. Like I would pay infinite amount of money to meet my wife because I love her and I'm happily married. No offense, Elias, but I probably wouldn't pay an infinite amount of money to meet you. Right. Ouch. 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 She had to go there. (laughs) I had to go there. So so why price that as a subscription? If fundamentally we're building and predicting relationships, why not price them the way you'd price something that has a variable value and do price optimization. And that was a tough decision. It uh, it was tough to get everybody on the team to go along with it. Um, customers actually loved it. And that's one of the reasons why we stuck with it is that I believe it's a big reason why we grew so quickly so early was we didn't ask anyone to find a budget for a new subscription you know, marketers don't sit around with extra budget laying around, oh, I I want to buy another subscription today. And we also looked at the technology stack with these thousands and thousands of marketing technology offers and thought, you know, the technology stacks can going to get so complicated. We need something that's easy to try, easy to buy. And it worked. And so we stuck with it. That said, I think subscriptions are awesome.
0: The, uh, it's it's wild to see the the martech landscape evolve and to hear this pricing model amidst that. I was catching up with um, Megan Eisenberg yesterday on the show, and you know her stack involves just on the martech side, not even crossing into any of the sales kind of blended between marketing and sales tools. Just thirty separate vendors that yeah. power her stack. <laughs> yeah, yeah, back. yeah,
1: yeah, we, we it's it's. I think if you talk to a lot of Smart CMOs, they're fatigued with SaaS. Uh, and I believe that that will go away because I believe the industry is ripe for consolidation and we're already starting to see signs of that. Uh, I'm thrilled that the Zoom info IPO went so well. Uh, you know, they're trading at 50 times revenue, uh, which is awesome. And I believe that there will be some consolidation. There will be fewer. We don't need 8,000 marketing technologies. We really don't. And if you go into any, you know back in the old days when we'd go to conferences, remember that? And we actually met people in person. Uh, you go to a marketing <laughs> conference and there would be hundreds of these little SaaS companies that had a better way to generate leads or a better way to do content marketing or a better way to do this or a better way to do that. And we looked at it and we're like, wow. Uh, you know, how do you stand out of this crowd? And so, you know, we didn't plan on it, but it turns out that the transactional pricing model, we call it a retention model. You know, we encourage our uh, our company to sell only to people that are going to buy from us four times in a year. You know, and that's was really driven by conversations I had with the guys at the trade desk. The trade desk is not a subscription. Uh, and they're trading, uh, last I checked, something like 130 times earnings, which is awesome. Show me a SaaS company that does that. Yeah, maybe yeah, Zoom do. Info does that these days, but it's it's awesome. It's a great success story. I remember
0: uh, I remember meeting Henry at uh, Dreamforce one year, and it wasn't even that long ago. I mean, it was like 2015 maybe or 2014, and he was he blended right into all of the other startup vendors because of how humble he was and just really low key. Back when it was Discover Org. It's amazing yeah. and, and so inspiring to see how successful he's uh, been at leading that company
1: to what it is today. He's awesome. Um, and, and that's a great company. That said, uh, you know, we do consider them as kind of a competitor. Um, you know What we try to do is try to position ourselves as the synthesis of data, predictive analytics, and outreach. That if you use Leadcrunch, you don't need a CDP. You don't need to go to uh, Ziff Davis or IDG. You don't need to buy as much data from Zoom Info. Turns out that most of our customers have Zoom Info, have elements of all of these, because a smart marketer is not going to put all of their eggs in one basket. They're going to look at marketing as a portfolio play. And I think that that's something that uh, will mean that it will never be a winner-take-all industry the way some consumer, like Facebook is clearly a winner-take-all. Uh, LinkedIn, I think is a winner take all. I don't think marketing will be marketing mark B2B marketing will never be a winner take all, but it will be a, uh, a few take it all. That's for sure. Completely.
0: So now I'm curious, uh, you know, you, you are running a very fast growing ship. What do you do to take your mind off it all and unwind? outside of work.
1: (laughs) (laughs) It's so funny you bring that up is that's one of my biggest concerns for our team is, is that, you know, during this weird period where a handshake is suddenly an incredible life-threatening act of intimacy uh, where everyone's socially distanced, it's really important for us to have some alone time without being on Zoom or without constantly working. And, you know, I'm, I'm very fortunate to live in a place where I go out and do a lot of hikes and bike rides. Um, I'm, I'm a fortunate guy that I got uh, my kids around a lot. So that's really, really fun. I call them my kids. They're actually my nieces. And I actually think I have a pretty nice balance. Uh, you know, last night was a little unusual because I got up and I had some ideas I just had to work on. So I was working at 4 a.m. this morning. But Most days I get a solid eight hours of sleep and I wish all of my team took a little bit more time to screw around uh, because I think that it's particularly in this environment with a social distancing, it's really important for people to do what they need to do to charge their batteries and exercise, eating right, getting outside, spending time with family, spending time with friends. This is what life is more about than work. Orders from the top screw around more. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um,
0: And then lastly, who are some of the folks who've, whether it's, you know, official mentors or just people who have inspired you to do what you're doing uh, professionally, who are some of those influences in your life?
1: Gosh, there's many. Um, I think it takes a village to raise a CEO um, I'm very grateful that I have such a strong board of directors. Uh, Tom Peterson from Rally Ventures and uh, Grady Burnett from Bow Capital both bring just so much experience. Uh, you know, Tom's had something like six or seven unicorns. Grady was a global head of sales for Facebook before he, he joined uh, uh, Bow Capital. So I'm really fortunate to have people in my network that I talk to very regularly um, the gentleman I referenced early on, I had a call with this morning. His name is Marv Langston. He's the former undersecretary of Defense, and he was also uh, a director of DARPA. Um, you know, he was one of people that I always find inspiration uh, from him. Uh, I would say the people that I really inspire me the most actually are, are places you don't un- you wouldn't expect it. Uh, my my two best men in my wedding, I couldn't pick one, so I had two are both physicians. And I find both of them very inspirational because one's in medical research and the other one's in healthcare policy. I like to be around people that are a lot smarter than I am. And I like people that are encourage good, respectful debate. I, I think that every idea should be torn apart and reexamined.
0: I love it. Well, Olin, thanks so much for taking the time. It's been a really nice conversation, and I'm sure that uh, our audience learned a thing or two, both about the future of uh, the Martech stack and some of the lessons you learned along the way. So, thanks for sharing.
1: Thank you. Bye bye.